Chapter 7 of The Autobiography of a Thief. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Autobiography of a Thief by Hutchins Hapgood. Chapter 7 In Stir. I hung my head with shame, but not because of contrition. I was ashamed of being caught and made a spectacle of. All the way to Sing Sing Station, people stared at us as if we were wild animals. We walked from the town to the prison in close company with two deputy sheriffs. I observed considerably, knowing that I should not see the outside world again for a number of years. I looked with envy at the people we passed who seemed honest, and thought of home and the chances I had thrown away. When I reached the stir I was put through the usual ceremonies. My pedigree was taken, but I told the examiners nothing. I gave them a false name and a false pedigree. Then a bath was given to my clothes and I was taken to the tailor shop. When my hair had been cropped close, and a suit of stripes given me, I felt what it was to be the convicted criminal. It was not a pleasant feeling, I can tell you, and when I was taken to my cell, my heart sank indeed. A narrow room, seven feet, four inches long, dark, damp, with moisture on the walls, and an old iron cot with plenty of company, as I afterward discovered, this was to be my home for years. And I, as full of life as a young goat, how could I bear it? After I had been examined by the doctor and questioned about my religion by the chaplain, I was left to reflect in my cell. I was interrupted in my melancholy train of thought by two convicts who were at work in the hall just outside my cell. I had known them on the outside, and they, taking good care not to be seen by the screws, keepers, tipped me off through my prison door to everything in stir which was necessary for a first-timer to know. They told me to keep my mouth shut, to take everything from the screws in silence, and if assigned to a shop to do my work. They told me who the stool pigeons were, that is to say the convicts who, in order to curry favor and have an easy time, put the keepers next to what other convicts are doing, and so helped to prevent escapes. They tipped me off to those keepers who were hard to get along with, and put me next to the underground tunnel, and who were running it. Sing Sing, they said, is the best of the three New York penitentiaries, for the grub is better than at the others, there are more privileges, and above all, it is nearer New York, so that your friends can visit you more frequently. They gave me a good deal of prison gossip, and told me who among my friends were there, and what their condition of health was. So-and-so had died or gone home, they said. Such-and-such had been drafted to Auburn or Clinton prisons. If I wanted to communicate with my friends in stir, all that was necessary for me to do was to write a few stiffs, letters, and they would be sent by the underground tunnel. They asked me about their old pals, hangouts, and girls in New York, and I, in turn, gave them a lot of New York gossip. Like all convicts, they shed a part of the things they had received from home, gave me canned goods, tobacco, and a pipe. It did not take me long to get on to the workings of the prison. I was particularly interested in the underground tunnel, for I saw at once its great usefulness. This is the secret system by which contraband articles such as whiskey, opium, and morphine are brought into the prison. When a rogue is persuasive with the coin of the realm, he can always find a keeper or two to bring him what he considers the necessities of life, among which are opium, whiskey, and tobacco. If you have a screw right, you can be well supplied with these little things. To get him right, it is often necessary to give him a share, about 20%, of the money sent you from home. This system is worked in all the state prisons in New York, and during my first term, or any of the other terms for that matter, I had no difficulty in supplying my growing need for opium. I do not want people to get the idea that it is always necessary to bribe a keeper in order to obtain these little luxuries. 
for many a screw has brought me whiskey and hop and contraband letters from other inmates without demanding a penny. A keeper is a human being like the rest of us, and he is sometimes moved by considerations other than of pelf. No matter how good and conscientious he may be, a keeper is but a man, after all, and having very little to do, especially if he is in charge of an idle gang of cons, he is apt to enter into conversations with them, particularly if they are better educated or more interesting than he, which is often the case. They tell him about their escapades on the outside and often get his sympathy and friendship. It's only natural that those keepers who are good fellows should do small favors for certain convicts. They may begin by bringing the convicts newspapers to read, but they will end by providing them with almost everything. Some of them, however, are so lacking in human sympathy that their kindness is aroused only by a glimpse of the coin of the realm, or by the prospect of getting some convict to do the dirty work for them, that is, to spy upon their fellow prisoners. At Auburn Penitentiary, whither I was drafted after nine months at Sing Sing, a few of the convicts peddled opium and whiskey with, of course, the connivance of the keepers. There are always some persons in prison, as well as out, who want to make capital out of the misfortunes of others. These peddlers were despised by the rest of the convicts, for they were invariably stool pigeons, and young convicts who never before knew the power of the drug became opium fiends, all on account of the business propensities of these detestable rats, stool pigeons, who, because they had money and kept the screws next to those cons who tried to escape, lived in Easy Street while in stir. While on this subject, I will tell about a certain famous fence, at one of these prisons, although he did not operate until my second term. At that time things were booming on the outside. The graft was so good that certain convicts in my clique were getting good dough sent them by the pals who were at liberty, and many luxuries came in, therefore, by the underground tunnel. Now, those keepers who are next to the underground develop, through their association with convicts, a propensity to graft, but usually have not the nerve to hustle for the goods. So they are willing to accept stolen property, not having the courage and skill to steal, from the inhabitants of the underworld. A convict, whom I knew when at liberty, named Mike, thought he saw an opportunity to do a good fencing business in prison. He gave a red front, gold watch and chain, which he had stolen in his good days, to a keeper who was running the underground, and thus got him right. Then Mike made arrangements with two grafters on the outside to supply the keeper and his friends with what they wanted. If the keeper said his girl wanted a stone, Mike would send word to one of the thieves on the outside to supply a good diamond as quickly as possible. The keeper would give Mike a fair price for these valuable articles and then sell the stones or watches or make his girl a present. Other keepers followed suit, for they couldn't see how there was any comeback possible, and soon Mike was doing a thriving business. It lasted for five or six months, when Mike stopped it as a regular graft because of the growing cupidity of the keepers. One of them ordered a woman's watch and chain and a pair of diamond earrings through the underground tunnel. Mike obtained the required articles, but the keeper paid only half of what he promised, and Mike thereupon shut up shop. Occasionally, however, he continued to sell goods stolen by his pals who were at liberty, but only for cash on the spot, and refused all credit. The keepers gradually got a great feeling of respect for this convict fence who was so clever and who stood up for his rights, and the business went on smoothly again for a while. But finally it was broken up for good. A grafter on the outside, Tommy, sent through the underground a pawn ticket for some valuable goods, among them a sealskin sack worth $300, which he had stolen and hocked in Philadelphia. Mike sold the pawn ticket to a screw. Soon after that, Tommy, or one of his pals, got a fall and squealed. The police got next to where the goods were, 
and when the keeper sent the ticket and the money to redeem the articles, they allowed them to be forwarded to the prison, but arrested the keeper for receiving stolen goods. He was convicted and sentenced to ten years, but got off through influence. That, however, finished the fence at the institution. To resume the thread of my narrative, the day after I reached Sing Sing, I was put through the routine that lasted all the time I was there. At 6.30 in the morning, we were awakened by the bell and marched in lockstep, from which many of us were to acquire a peculiar gait that was to mark us through life and help prevent us from leading decent lives, to the bucket shop where we washed, marched to the mess for breakfast at 7.30, then to the various shops to work until 11.30, when at the whistle we would form again into squads and march again in the lockstep, fraternally but silently, to our solemn dinner, which we ate in dead silence. Silence, indeed, except on the sly, was the general rule of our day, until work was over, when we could whisper together until five o'clock, the hour to return to our cells, into which we would carry bread for supper, coffee being conveyed to us through a spout in the wall. The food at Sing Sing was pretty good. Breakfast consisted of hash or molasses, black coffee, and bread. And at, at dinner, we had pork and beans, potatoes, hot coffee, and bread. Pork and beans gave place to four eggs on Friday, and sometimes stews were given us. It was true what I would heard, that Sing Sing has the best food of any institution I have known. After five o'clock I would read in my cell by an oil lamp. Since my time, electricity has been put in the prison. Until nine o'clock, when I had to put out my light and go to bed. I had a great deal more time for reading and meditation in my lonely cell than one would think by the above routine. I was put to work in the shop making chairs. It was the first time I had ever worked in my life, and I took my time about it. I felt no strong desire to work for the state. I was expected to cane a hundred chairs a day, but I usually caned about two. I did not believe in work. I felt at that time that New York State owed me a living. I was getting a living all right, but I was ungrateful. I did not thank them a wee bit. I must have been a bad example to other cons, for they began to get as tired as myself. At any rate, I lost my job, and was sent back to my cell where I stayed most of the time while at Sing Sing. I worked, indeed, very little at any time during my three bits in the penitentiary. The prison at Sing Sing, during the nine months I was there on my first term, was very crowded, and there was not enough work to go around, and I was absolutely idle most of the time. When I had been drafted to Auburn, I found more work to do, but still very little, for it was just then that the legislature had shut down on contract labor in the prisons. The outside merchants squealed because they could not compete with unpaid convict labor, and so the prison authorities had to shut down many of their shops running only enough to supply the inside demand, which was slight. For eighteen months at Auburn, I did not work a day. I think it was a very bad thing for the health of the convicts when this law was passed, for certainly idleness is a very bad thing for most of them, and to be shut up nearly all the time in damp, unhealthy cells like those at Sing Sing is a terrible strain on the human system. Personally, however, I like to be in my cell, especially during my first year of solitary confinement, before my health began to give way for I had my books from the good prison libraries, my pipe or cigarettes, and last but not least, I had a certain portion of opium that I used every day. For me, prison life had one great advantage. It broke down my health and confined me for many years in the opium habit, as we shall see, but I educated myself while in stir. Previous to going to Sing Sing, my education had been almost entirely in the line of graft, but in stir... I read the English classics and became familiar with philosophy and the science of medicine and learned something about chemistry. One of my favorite authors was Voltaire, 
whom I read, of course, in a translation. His dictionary was contraband in prison, but I read it with profit. Voltaire was certainly one of the shrewdest of men, and as up to snuff as any cynical grafter I know, and yet he had a great love for humanity. He was the philosopher of humanity. Goethe said that Luther threw the world back two hundred years, but I deny it, for Luther, like Voltaire, pointed out the ignorance and wickedness of the priests of their day. These churchmen did not understand the teachings of Christ. Was Voltaire delusional? The priests must have thought so, but they were no judges, for they were far worse and less humane than the French revolutionists. The latter killed outright, but the priests tortured in the name of the most humane. I never approved of the methods of the French revolutionists, but certainly they were gentle in comparison with the priests of the Spanish Inquisition. I think that, in variety of subjects, Voltaire has no equal among writers. Shrewd as he was, he had a soul, and his moral courage was grand. His defense of young Barry, who was arrested for using language against the church, showed his kindness and breadth of mind. On his arrival in Paris, when he was only a stripling, he denounced the cowardly, fawning sycophants who surrounded Louis XIV. Footnote. Sick. Editor's note. And wrote a sarcastic poem on his nibs, and was confined in the Bastille for two years. His courage, his wit, his sarcasms, his hatred of his persecutors, and his love and kindness stamp him as one of the great, healthy intellects of mankind. What a clever book is Candide! What satire! What wit! As I lay on my cot, how often I laughed at his caustic comments on humanity. And how he could hate! I never yet met a man of any account who was not a good hater. I own that Voltaire was ungallant toward the fair sex, but that was his only fault. I enjoyed Victor Hugo because he could create a great character, and was capable of writing a story with a plot. I rank him as a master of fiction, although I preferred his experience as a traveler to his novels, which are not real enough. Ernest Renan was a bracing and clever writer, but I was sadly disappointed in reading his Life of Jesus. I expected to get a true outline of Christ's time and a character sketch of the man himself, but I didn't. I went to the fountain for a glass of good wine, but only got red lemonade. I liked Dumas and reveled in the series beginning with The Three Musketeers. I could not read Dumas now, however. I also enjoyed Gaborio and Dubois-Gobet, for they are very sensational, but that was during my first term in stir. I could not turn a page of their books now, for they would seem idiotic to me. Balzac is a bird of another feather. In my opinion, he was one of the best dissectors of human nature that the world ever produced. Not even Shakespeare was his equal. His depth in searching for motives, his discernment in detecting a hypocrite, his skill in showing up women with their follies, their loves, their little hypocrisies, their endearments, their malice, and their envy is unrivaled. It is right that Balzac should show woman with all her faults and follies and virtues, for if she did not possess all these characteristics, how could man adore her? In his line, I think Thackeray is as great as Balzac. When I had read Vanity Fair, Pendennis, The Newcomes, and Barry Lyndon, I was so much interested that I read anything of his I could lay my hands on, over and over again. With the novel of Thackeray's in my hand, I would become oblivious to my surroundings, and long to know something of this writer's personality. I think I formed his mental makeup correctly, for I imagined him to be gentle and humane. Any man with ability and brains equal to his could not be otherwise. What a character is Becky Sharp! In her way, she was as clever a grafter as Sheenie Annie. 
She did not love Rawdon as good as a wife should. If she had, she would not be the interest in Becky that she is. She was grateful to Rawdon for three reasons. First, he married her. Second, he gave her a glimpse into a station of life her soul longed for. Third, he came from a good family, and was a soldier and tall, and it is well known that little women like big men. Then, Rawdon amused Becky. She often grinned at his lack of brains. She grinned at everything, and when we learned that Becky got religion at the end of the book, instead of saying, God bless her, we only grinned too. Pendennis is a healthy book. I always sympathized with Penn and Laura in their struggles to get on, and when the baby was born I was willing to become Godpapa, just for its mama's sake. The Newcombs I call Thackeray's masterpiece. It is truer to life than any other book I have ever read. Take the scene where young Clive throws the glass of wine in his cousin's face. The honest horror of the father. His indignation when old Captain Costigan uses bad language. His exit when he hears a song in the music hall. All this is true realism. But the scene that makes this book Thackeray's masterpiece is that where the old colonel is dying. The touching devotion of Madame and Ethel. The love for old Tom. His last word, adsome. The quiet weeping of his nurse. And the last duties to the dead. The beautiful tenderness of the two women of a kind that makes the fair sex respected by all men. I can never forget this scene till my dying day. When I was sick and stir, a better tonic than the quack could prescribe was Thackeray's Book of Snobs. Many is the night I could not sleep until I have read this book with a relish. It acted on me like a bottle of good wine, leaving me peaceful after a time of pleasure. In this book are shown up the little egotisms of the goslings and the foibles of the sucklings in a masterly manner. I read every word Dickens ever wrote, and I often ruminated in my mind as to which of his works was a masterpiece. Our mutual friend is weak in the love scenes, but the book is made readable by two characters, Naughty Boffin and Silas Wegg. Where Wegg reads, as he thinks, The Last of the Russians, when the book was the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, there is the quintessence of humor. Silas's wooden leg and his occupation of selling eggs would make anybody smile, even a dip who had fallen and had no money to square it. The greatest character in David Copperfield is Uriah Heep. The prison scene, where this humble hypocrite showed he knew his Bible thoroughly, and knew the advantage of having some holy quotations pat, reminded me often of men I have known in Auburn and Sing Sing prisons. Some hypocritical jailbird would dream that he could succeed on the outside by becoming a Sunday school superintendent, and four of the meanest thieves I ever knew got their start in that way. Who has not enjoyed Micawber, with his frothy personality and straitened circumstances, and the unctuous Barkus? Poor Emily! Who could blame her? What woman could help liking Steerforth? It is strange and true that good women are won by men they know to be rascals. Is it the contrast between good and evil, or is it because the ne'er-do-well has a stronger character and more magnetic force? Agnes was one of the best women in the world. Contrast her with David's first wife. Agnes was like a fine violin, while Dora was like a wailing hurdy-gurdy. Oliver Twist is Dickens' strongest book. He goes deeper into human nature than in any other of his writings. Fagin, the Jew, is a very strong character, but overdrawn. The picture of Fagin's dens, and of the people in them, is true to life. I have seen similar gatherings many a time. 
The ramblings of the artful Dodger are drawn from the real thing, but I never met in real life such a brutal character as Bill Sykes, and I have met some tough grafters, as the course of this book will show. Nancy Sykes, however, is true to life. In her degradation, she was still a woman. I contend that a woman is never so low, but a man was the cause. One passage in the book has often touched me as it showed that Nancy has not lost her sex. When she and Bill were passing the prison, she turned towards it and said, Bill, they were fine fellows that died today. Shut your mouth, said Bill. Now I don't think there is a thief in the United States who would have answered Nancy's remark that way. Strong arm workers who would beat your brains out for a few dollars would be moved by that touch of pity in Nancy's voice. But Oliver himself is the great character, and his story reminds me of my own. The touching incident in the workhouse where his poor stomach is not full, and he asks for a second platter of mush to the horror of the teachers, is not overdrawn. When I was in one of our penal institutions at a later time of my life, I was ill and asked for extra food but my request was looked upon as the audacity of a hardened villain. I had many such opportunities to think of Oliver. I always liked those authors who wrote as near life as decency would permit. Stern's Tristram Shandy has often amused me, and Tom Jones, Roderick Random, and Peregrine Pickle I have read over and over again. I don't see why good people object to such books. Such people are forever looking after the affairs of others and neglecting their own, especially a man whom I will call Common Socks, who has put himself up as a mentor for over seventy millions of people. Let me tell the busy ladies who are afraid that such books will harm the morals of young persons, that the more they are cried down, the more they will be read. For that matter, they ought to be read. Why object to the girl of sixteen reading such books and not to the woman of thirty-five? I think their mental strength is about equal. Both are romantic, and the woman of thirty-five will fall in love as quickly as the girl of sixteen. I think a woman is always a girl, at least it has been so in my experience. One day I was grafting in Philadelphia. It was raining, and a woman was walking along Walnut Street. She slipped on the wet sidewalk and fell. I ran to her assistance and saw that her figure was slim and girlish and that she had a round rosy face, but that her hair was pure white. When I asked her if she was hurt, she said yes. But when I said, let me be your grandson and support you on my way, I put my foot into it for horrors, the look she gave me, as she said in an icy voice, I was never married. I wondered what manner of men there were in Philadelphia, and to square myself I said, never married, and with a pair of such pretty ankles? Then she gave me a look, thanked me, and walked away as jauntily as she ever did in her life, though she must have been suffering agonies from a sprained ankle. Since that time I have been convinced that they of the gentle sex are girls, from fifteen to eighty. I read much of Lever, too, while I was in stir. His pictures of Ireland and the noisy strife in Parliament, and the description of Dublin with its spendthrifts and excited populace, the gamblers and the ruined but gay young gentlemen, all mixed up with the grandeur of Ireland, are the work of a master. I could only compare this epic of worn-out regalia with the St. Patrick's Day parade twenty years ago in the Fourth Ward of Manhattan. Other books I read in stir were Gibbon's Roman Empire, Carlyle's Frederick the Great, and many of the English poets. I read Wordsworth, Gray, and Goldsmith, but I liked Tom Moore and Robert Burns better. The greatest of all the poets, however, in my estimation, is Byron. His loves were many, his adventures daring, and his language was as broad and independent as his mind.
End of chapter 7